events just to give you the proper back story and then we'll preach starting in verse number 32 and this morning I'd like to talk about various reactions to the resurrection and it's a very simple sermon I don't have anything deep to give you this morning just some very basic thoughts there's three reactions and nothing that's going to surprise you here yes no maybe You'll see those are the three reactions, and that's kind of the only three reactions that there are, and you'll see why it's so important when we deal with this topic. Before we even begin to read this morning, might you please bow your heads with me and join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we can sing these wonderful songs about the grace that is greater than all of our sin. Lord, we, we love singing how our Savior came out of the grave. What a story we get to sing about and proclaim. The best part is it's true. And Lord, we can't wait for the day we get to see you face to face. Until then, we are so happy and we rejoice knowing that you are alive and that you're seated at the right hand of God. This morning, we hear the knocking. Lord, we want to hear your voice. We want to invite you in. Please fellowship with us. Sup with us and we with you. We, we desire that this morning. Speak to our hearts about this resurrection and how important it is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 17, and verse number 16, Paul is in the midst of a missionary journey here. He says, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, he has a couple of fellow laborers, Silas and Timothy. He's waiting in Athens. It says his spirit was stirred with him, uh, in him, sorry, when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. It's a bit difficult for us to appreciate what that feels like. Because I don't know if you've ever been in a city that is wholly, completely given to idolatry. But that, that is a very creepy type of place to be in. With all the traveling I've done, there, there are some cities I think that are quite close to what Paul's explaining here. There's a different atmosphere. You check over your shoulder a little bit more than you normally would in such a place. Verse 17, therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. This city, wholly given to idolatry, that is to say, everybody has their own version of God. So what's Paul's reaction? Everywhere he goes, every chance he gets, he is discussing, he's creating dialogues with all of these different people, Jews, yes, but also devout persons, no matter what they are devout to. Understand this morning, just because somebody believes something sincerely does not make their belief right. You can be sincerely wrong. We're not taking away the fact that they are sincere, but it doesn't make it right. Even in the market, Paul goes out for groceries, and if he has a chance to talk about the Lord Jesus, he's going to do it. Verse 18, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him I'm not going to give you all the background let me just try to give you a, a quick explanation for these groups an Epicurean would believe that if it feels good do it eat drink be merry for tomorrow we die that's the general thought of an Epicurean and then a stoic this is a man who is given to the idea of fate now, this is not to say that he's a Calvinist, right? Not, not the same idea as that, but a Stoic would believe that all things are going to turn out a certain way anyway. So just make peace with it. Just learn to fall in line with the way the universe wants things to turn out and you'll be happy. So it's, it's not complete determinism. They do believe that people had a choice, but that things are going to be however they're going to be. C'est la vie, you know, what is it? Que sera, sera, that's it. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. So that was their theme song. So these groups encounter Paul. Now, it says, and some said, what will this babbler say? A babbler, he's just talking gibberish, nonsense. Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is a curiosity in town. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him unto Oropagus. Oropagus, um, the god of war in the Greek pantheon, was a god named Ares. All right, so you see that in the first part of the word, Ario, Ares. Right? And then Apegas in Greek is, is like a high hill or a mountain. Oropagus 
was where they thought the God of the war uh, kind of lived. In another way of saying it is Mars, Mars Hill. So they're going to take him to this place where you hear all of these interesting things, where you judge all of these cases. Oropagus was the place of judgment. It was the place of war and all, where all the big decisions were made. So they took him and brought him unto Oropagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, on the surface, doesn't that sound good? You think, man, it sounds like they're interested. A few of them were. You did have a few interested listeners, but just like any assembly of people, you're going to have some that are more serious than others. Some come wanting to actually learn, and some come simply for the entertainment value. Let's just hear this new thing so that we have something to talk about over lunch. Right? So verse 21, you can see the parentheses idea here. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They just like sitting around telling stories. Didn't matter if it was true or not. And they kind of lumped Paul into that category. You got this weird, strange story. Let's hear what you have to say. Verse 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. You're afraid of things that aren't real. You're doing strange things, but for no purpose. You're too superstitious. And this is why, verse 23, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, just picture this in your mind. This is ancient Greece. They have their you know, pantheon of gods. So you, they called them Olympians, by the way. They, they, were all, they thought that they lived in Mount Olympus. So the Greeks called them the gods of the, the, the Olympian gods. So they would have an altar and then a little statue of Zeus and then an altar with Ares and an altar with Hermes and, all, and down it would go. And then as Paul's walking past, shaking his head going, oh, shame, man, these people, they've never met this God. They don't know anything about that God. They're just making this stuff up. And he gets to an altar like a pillar. There's nothing on it. It's a blank pillar, but there's a little placard with this inscription to the unknown God, just in case we missed one. <laughs> now, the reason I point that out is that's how unsure they were about religion. They could not tell, is this God better than this God? Should we worship this one or that one? Well, just in case we missed one, let's give him an altar as well. Now, that's heartbreaking, right? It's by a heartseer. But unfortunately, even amongst people that claim to be Christians, I fear that there's nothing on that altar that they serve the, the, the idea of Jesus, but they don't know Him personally. And He is unknown, right? They know the name maybe, but that's about it. That's equally as sad. Paul sees this empty altar, and he says, guys, you're going too far. You're offering up things to a God you don't even know about. He says at the end of verse 23, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, Him declare I unto you. Now what he's doing is, is he is excluding all the other gods with their altars. He's saying all of those other gods are wrong. It's this, this open area, this unknown God that you have admitted you are unfamiliar with. I'm going to tell you who you're not familiar with. I'm going to narrow it down to one particular God. This is the one you should worship. Verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, seeing He giveth, life to, uh, giveth to all life and breath and all things. So the God that you're not familiar with, you don't know about, is the God that made you. Now this is a very simple point for us, but think about this. In the Greek mind, in the Athenians' minds, they worshipped gods that their hands had made. They sculpted that God. They built that altar. They put Him there. They wrote the inscription. They made that God. And Paul's flipping that around and going, the real God is the God that made you. He doesn't need the work of your hands, right, in order to be worshipped. You are the work of His hands, and that's why we worship Him. 
because he molded you, he put breath in you, he gave you life. So the real God is not the one that you make, but the one that made you. Now he's going to narrow it down even more. Verse 26, And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Why point this out? Why is this a notable fact? Because in Greece, they had their pantheon of gods. But then you go down the road, you're in Rome, they have their gods. Then you come to North Africa, Libya, they have their gods. There's temples all over the world. You go to India today, 330 million gods are worshipped in that nation. 330 million. He's saying, guys, the whole earth, the truth I'm giving you is not just an Athenian truth. It doesn't apply just here in Pachistruum. This truth is true the world over, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your ID book, regardless of what language you speak. God has made of one blood all nations of men to dwell here on the face of the earth. And then he gives us more information and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Why has he determined these times and their bounds, their boundaries? That they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. God's not, he's not some far distant being that is impossible to know. He's actually quite close to you. The, the difference is, do you want to know him? Now, bear in mind, the Athenians, much like all over the world, they didn't have Bibles like we do. It's not like they could just open to chapter and verse and say, there's the true God. In this time, most of these people, most of these Gentiles, they had to seek after God using their conscience. So this is how it worked. They would do something, and then if it was bad, they would feel bad about it. See? And then they would go down the street to their friend and go, hey, I did this yesterday, and it didn't feel right. Have you ever felt like that? And that guy would say, you know, me too. And then they, you'd have a conversation going, you know what? This is pretty much a universal truth. Everybody I talk to, they feel bad about this. It's not just me. And now they're starting to develop an idea of right and wrong. That's how God built it. The meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Now this brings me back to verse number 26 at the end of it. God has set it up. He's built mankind so that we can seek Him. Now I do not think that feeling after Him, that is to go by your conscience, I don't, I don't think that's the only way to do it. The best way to do it, as we're going to see, is to go through the Bible and to look at the resurrection. God has continually manifested Himself to various people at various times. So at the very least, we have our feelings to go by, but that's the very least. Look at verse 26 again at the end. It says, He has determined the times before appointed. So God has a schedule, and at various times throughout history, He shows up to various people groups and says, Here's how you can know where I am and who I am and how you can follow me. Now, every people group has a different story. We're going to see in just a moment, God eventually sends His Son, and that's one event for all people. But here and there, God has done things in various nations to draw people to Himself. Now, there's boundaries to this. The times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. What are the boundaries? Well, certainly it's not the map as we would now know it, right? It's not like back in biblical times they had a border with customs agents and home affairs and passports and nothing like that. Those are not the boundaries. You say, well, it's skin color. No, it's not even that. It's not skin color. Skin color does not mean that only blacks can live here and whites can live there. That's a bad way to make boundaries. Amen. You know what makes boundaries? And South Africa is not going to like this much, but it's true. It's languages. It's a natural barrier. We call it the language barrier. You know who made that barrier? God. Tower of Babel. The whole world was one, and they were seeking after the wrong God. And God said, okay, the whole world, I've got to break you guys up so that I can deal with you in smaller groups because when you guys get together, you get way too confused. <laughs> so then he sends languages so that we can be dealt with in smaller groups now, I'll give you some evidence of this. If, if you walk into a, if I walk into a room, 
right? And there's white men sitting at this table and black men sitting at this table. And I sit down at the table of, with all the white men and they start speaking Russian to me. You know how long I'm going to sit at that table? About three seconds until I realize, oh, I'm in the wrong place. I don't understand anything that they're saying. All, I, I, it looks like they say, pass the vodka. That's all I know. <laughs> right? That's not my table. And then I look over at the other table, and there's some black guys sitting over there, and they speak English. You know where I want to sit? I want to sit over there so I can have a conversation. Hey, guys, what's going on in this room? What brought you here? I can get along with that. See, we can communicate. We can learn from each other. That's the basis, the boundaries of my fellowship has nothing to do with what they look like. It has to do with the ability to communicate, to share thoughts. Now watch this. If I'm sitting at the table with the black guys, we're speaking English, and half of them worship ancestors, and the other half worship Christ. Guess which, guess which ones I'm going to gravitate towards? The ones I have more in common with. It has nothing to do with their skin color. We fellowship based on truth. How do I figure out if you understand the truth? Communication. So God has set it up in such a way so that we can share information with each other that will help us find God. Now, I've explained that so that you understand Paul's point here. Stop thinking that your Greek gods are better than the African gods and that the African gods somehow beat the Indian gods. It's not a competition amongst the gods. There's only one true God. It is the God that made you. And the ultimate goal of God creating man is for us to seek Him and find Him. You understand? That's the point of Paul's sermon. Verse 28, he says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Paul quotes a heathen poet to support his point. Now, why would he do this? Why wouldn't Paul quote Genesis? Why not quote a verse from the Bible? Isn't the Bible more authoritative? Yes, but do the Athenians know that? No. The Athenians are more familiar with this heathen poet that said, we all came from God. So Paul says, guys, even your heathen poets have figured this out. Even your philosophers have figured out that there has to be a God out there that created us. It makes no sense to say we created God. Verse 29, for as much then as we are the offspring of God. So because that's true. We ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. So because you generally accept the wisdom of that poet that we are the offspring of God, we came from Him, it's foolish to think that you can then make God with silver and gold with your hands. That just doesn't make sense. Paul is making an irrefutable point. This is solid logic. Now watch, watch where he goes with this in verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. He just called their entire philosophical and religious system ignorance. He says, guys, I'm sorry, but what you believe makes no sense. You are worshiping gods that you made with your hands. and You think your gods are better than their gods. He says that whole system makes no sense. But the good news in this is God has winked at it. God has been very gracious. He's put up with this false system for a long, long time. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Paul's bringing his sermon to a close. It's a short sermon. Amen. Gotta love those, right? <laughs> he's, bringing, he's bringing his sermon to, to a point, saying, God has been very patient with people all over the world. Say, what about the heathen that didn't know? Paul's answering that question. God winked at it and said, bless your heart. I know it's confusing. I've tried to reach out. You didn't quite get the message, but now I'm going to do something that will act as a beacon, as a lighthouse for the entire world to come seeking God, and there will be only one way to Him. And now, because God has sent His Son, He commands all men everywhere to repent you guys have heard me say this for a long time God works with different people at different times in different ways but as of the death burial and resurrection of Christ there's one way to be saved 
and no man comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. All men everywhere must repent. Have you? You are one of those all men everywhere. I was born here. That's just not my culture. This is not how I know. This is the command. God's been patient, and now he says, listen, I've, now I've done enough for you to know better. It's time to repent. Verse 31, because. Why can God command all people on the earth to choose just one way of salvation? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Now, who is that man that God chose to be the standard for all judgment? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the Athenians wanted to know about? Paul, you babbler, you keep talking about this Jesus guy, and you keep talking about how he came back from the dead. That's a, that's a weird thing to say about somebody, but we want to hear more about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul says, all right, let's go back to Genesis 1. <laughs> Since you don't know that verse, I'll use a heathen poet to get across the same point, but let's go back to the very beginning and establish what it's all about. We're supposed to be seeking and finding God, and God built a lighthouse. That lighthouse is Jesus. When when we read in verse 31 that God, it says, He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance. Instead of superstition, instead of it's my culture, Now we have assurance. We know for sure this is the right way. How do we know for sure? He has given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. God sending His Son and allowing Jesus to die on the cross, it deals with one of the most important issues to humanity, and that is justice. Justice. Why do bad things happen and God seemingly doesn't care. Why do bad things happen and God does not punish the wicked? People have been asking this question ever since there, there have been people. And with Jesus coming, we have an innocent man dying. He never did anything wrong. You know what God says? In three days, I raise him up, and that proves I do care about justice. I do care. Something bad happened to a good man, and I may not fix it in this life, but in the next, I will make it right. I will bring him up and I will give him what he deserves. He deserves a seat at the right hand. Far above all principality and power, as we heard in Sunday school, this is what he deserves. I will ultimately give you what you deserve. Now, this is a fantastic point. When we see the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, it proves that there is more to life than your mortal existence. The grave does not end you. So when we look at what Jesus did there on his final, you know, his last days on earth, it shows us so much about the nature of God. God will ultimately give justice. He will give a punishment to your sins. You say, but Jesus was innocent, then why would he die to begin with? He dies for the same reason you're going to die. Your sins. And that's why God was able to raise him up three days later is because Jesus himself never sinned. There's so much truth in that death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is what allows God to say, everybody all over the world needs to repent and come to Christ because I have made a way for you to be reconciled to me. It's no longer impossible to know me. You can know me fully through my Son. Now, there are three reactions to that. Verse 32, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysius the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, or Damaris, and others with them. Three reactions. It actually happened in reverse order to what I would normally say. It was no, maybe, and then yes. Let's just look at these three reactions real quickly. In verse 32, the first reaction was some mocked. Now, there were some in this crowd that were already mocking. Isn't that right? They they showed up to this sermon 
with the idea in mind that Paul is crazy. He is a babbler. He's talking about strange gods. They had their mind made up before they came to church. They walked in mockers, and they walked out mockers. If you come to an assembly where the Word of God is being preached, folks, if you come with a closed heart and closed eyes and closed ears, don't expect to get anything from it. If you come looking for a reason to mock the sermon, you will find a reason to mock the sermon. You cannot help people that are not willing to be helped. You cannot give advice to somebody that thinks they need no advice. They'd already determined this man is a babbler. So nothing he says is of any importance to us. So they mocked him. Now I have found that mocking, making fun of somebody, is actually like a defense mechanism in many ways. Right? There are two reasons you would laugh at somebody who is trying to make this big of a statement. Number one, maybe he's making a big statement about important things and what he said was so ridiculous, so far out there that all you can do is laugh. And you just kind of giggle to yourself and go, oh my goodness, where do we start to explain how wrong this idea is? Now, there's actually a precedent for this in the Bible. Do you remember when Elijah went up against the 450 prophets of Baal? They're jumping up on the altar. It says from about 6 a.m. in the morning, they went for about eight, nine hours up on the altar, cutting themselves with knives. Old Baal hears, old Baal hears, old Baal. They were going on and on. Elijah, the Bible says, mocked them. <laughs> and Elijah said, uh, maybe you should cry a little louder. Maybe Baal stepped out of the office. Maybe he took a nap. Maybe he's on a journey, right? Be because what they were doing was so laughable Elijah said, I, I don't even know where to start to pick your ideas apart. This is just ridiculous. But there's another reason I think people would mock at what's being said, and that is the exact opposite. It might be so balaklech, so ridiculous, all I can do is giggle. But it might be so ironclad. The proof you gave, the explanation you gave is so clear, I have no good response for not repenting. I would really like to walk away the same way I came. I really don't want to change and become a Christian, but because your explanation was so clear, I have no excuse for not turning. So what do I do? Uh, let me change the subject. Let me just laugh at you. What's the response? Oh, you can't be right. Why? Because you're a babbler. Remember how they used to mock Elisha the prophet? Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Amen. I'm getting there. Little by little, God's turning me into a prophet. <laughs> Go up, thou bald head. Did you know that's not a reason to reject the man's preaching? But people will pick on little things. Can you believe he likes to get loud like that? You know, it's so distracting whenever he gets excited like that. That's not a reason to reject the preaching. Some years back, we took a small group from this church. We went to Mohadin. Does everybody know Mohadin? Okay, you have, you have Ikachen, you have... Promosa then Mohadin. So we're in Mohadin. There's a lot of Muslims in that area. We're there passing out tracts. It was a Friday afternoon. And we, we were not trying to target any group of Muslims, right? But they just came out of the mosque. So a few of our members went and gave these, there were a bunch of teenagers, older teenagers, 17, 18 years old, gave them tracts. And these teenagers start just filthy language. And they start cussing at our members and making fun of them. And I come over and kind of calm it down a little bit. Say, hey, hey, we're not trying to cause any trouble. We're just trying to tell people about the Lord. And they went and got their imam. Everybody knows what an imam is? And an imam is like the pastor at the mosque, all right, if you want to think of it like that. So they went and got their imam. And the imam came out and he found me. And he says, what are you doing in our place trying to cause trouble? And he's going on with me. And I said, sir, we're just trying to talk to people about the Lord. We're, if people don't want to have this conversation with us, we're not forcing anybody. If you'd rather us just go down the road, he really says, oh, but, but you have nothing to say. And he keeps going on. And then he said, why do you believe in a trinity? He brings up that. I said, well, sir, the reason we believe it, and before I could even finish the explanation, which there is a pretty solid biblical explanation for that, 
His, his point was nowhere in the Bible do you find the Trinity. I said, Jesus said to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Your prophet, Jesus, said those three. And he went, ah, no, your God is just a box of smarties. Okay, here's a Bible verse where Jesus said, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, to answer your question of where's the Trinity in the Bible, response, your God is a box of smarties. That's not a response to what I just said. What does that have to do with this? You understand? The, the problem is, he didn't have an answer to that. And therefore, it's much easier to simply shrug it off by laughing at it, making fun of it. I can imagine back in Noah's day, he probably had that, that issue all the time. God says, build the ark. There he is building the ark. Nowhere near a body of water. People are walking by all the time going, hey, Noah, what you doing? Building an ark. What for? It's going to flood. Big flood. Massive. Whole earth is going to die, drown, destroyed. Really? Why are you building the ark so big? I mean, you just got three boys and they're wide. I mean, what, what's all the space for? Well, God's going to bring two of all the animals. Seven of some, right? Seven pairs of others. But all the animals are going to be saved. All the animals? You're going to fit them in there? Well, just two of every kind. How are you going to get them here? God's going to bring them. <laughs> Shut up. All right, Noah. Good on you, buddy. Start <laughs> the I, I am assuming that the vast majority of that population shrugged that off, probably laughed at him. I bet Noah was the butt of all the jokes. Over dinner, people just roasted him. What an idiot. I mean, this guy, 500 years old, he's an engineer, he's throwing his life away on this boat in the middle of the desert kind of thing. What is he thinking? Poor Noah. But Jesus later would say, as, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. He says the world didn't realize it until the flood came and took them all away. He said that's how it's going to be when the Son of Man comes. Here we are preaching that Jesus rose from the dead and because He rose, listen, He's alive. Because He's alive, He's coming back because He said He's coming back. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. We are looking for that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We say, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> Jesus coming back. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. The people in Noah's day did not take it seriously. They ate. They drank. They got married. They just went on with life as if... Noah could not possibly have heard from God. Now, if, if you really think about it, I know people would have laughed at Noah, but Noah was walking with God. And those people would have known that Noah is not like the rest of us. He is an upright man. He's a just man. He does walk with God. They should have at least paused to say, Noah probably knows God better than us. We ought to at least take this message a little bit seriously. But they didn't. You know what that message did for them? Nothing. It didn't change their lives. You know what this message of the resurrection did for the Athenians, for the first group? They just outright rejected it, laughed it off, and it didn't change their lives at all. They just went right on worshiping their false gods, worshiping the unknown God. It did not change them at all. They pushed it out of their mind. Now, is that sad? Folks, is that sad? Can I tell you something I think is even sadder? For somebody to say, no, 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 I believe that Jesus rose again. And then it still doesn't change anything about your life. I, I believe that he did. I believe he rose again. I believe he's coming back. And what is that doing in your life? How does that change the plans that you're making? The 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 plans for tomorrow, for next week, the plans for 30 years, for 50 years, for 100 years from now. What difference has it made in your life this week, the fact that he's alive? Did you take advantage of that at all? 
Did it, bear, did it come to bear in any of your thoughts? It's sad that they mocked, but we understand why it wouldn't have changed them. If you believe it, it ought to really change you. Now that's the first group. The second group, others said, we will hear thee again of this matter, verse 32. So we have the no, and then we have the maybe. You know what, Paul? Yo, we've never heard anything like this. We've never had a preacher come to town. I'd like to hear more about this. You know, I appreciate this crowd. They're not saved. You understand that? They're not saved at this point. But at least they're being honest. I'm, I'm not fully convinced. I grew up in this other religion. You know, it's been 30, 40 years. And now I'm hearing all these other things. Give me another week. Paul, could you stick around a little bit more? Where are you speaking next? I'd like to come, you know, when's your next church service? Paul has experienced this before. In Acts chapter 13, he went to a synagogue. He preached this great sermon. And the people there, the Gentiles in that synagogue, they said, we want to hear you preach next Sabbath. You know what the Bible says in Acts 13? The whole city came out. Could you imagine? The whole city came out and said, okay, man. Because for a whole, city, or for a whole week, that everybody that was in that service had been telling the others, man, this guy preached. I've never heard preaching like this. He talked about Jesus and how he fulfilled Scripture. Man, this is, un, this is incredible. you got to come hear this. Everybody that was there is bringing 10 visitors. What a day that was. And the Bible says that um, the masses there that day gave their hearts to the Lord. You know why? Because they were being honest. Paul, we've never heard this first time. We'd like to hear it again next week. And the next... You know what we learn from that? You and I, Christian, don't force people into being saved. If they're not ready, don't, don't push them into it. Don't trick them into like a used car salesman. Don't talk them into saying a prayer and make them think that they're saved when they're not ready. Let the Holy Spirit work on them. And if it takes a few more weeks of planting seeds and watering seeds and praying for them, let the Spirit of God do something. It's our job to plant. It's our job to water. It's God's job to give the increase. So thank God for people that are honest and say, we're not there yet, but we'll, we'll take a few extra steps down this path. That, Paul, what you've said makes sense. We just want to think about it. Now, one word of caution. Maybe you're here this morning and that's your journey. And I can appreciate that you need more time. But be careful that you don't go one, te- one step too far with this. Moms, dads, have you ever done this? Where your kids come and say, Mom, Ma, Pa, can I please do this? And you go, I'll think about it. I think our kids eventually learn when we say, I'll think about it, that means politely, no way. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Don't ask again. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's our nice way of saying it, right? I'll think about it. Come on, moms and dads. We, we mean well. We mean well. We're trying to be nice. But, but how many times have you actually thought about it? Or is, or is that our little white lie? Because <laughs> we're trying to be nice. Man, I hit a nerve there. I can see a lot of moments of death. Right. It, it, don't be afraid to use that as an answer. But if you say, I'm going to think about it, actually think about it. Right. Be fair to the kids. If somebody says, thank you for telling me the gospel, I'll think about it. Let them think about it. And then what do we hope? That they actually think about it. I am sure that there have been times I've given out a tract, explained the gospel, and somebody says, I'll think about it, because they want to get rid of me. If you're here this morning, and you've been thinking about it, I am not going to twist your, I don't want to twist your arm and say, listen, today, you have to get saved today. What you have to do is respond to what God is putting on your heart. And if you have heard, verse 30, the command today that God wants you to repent and come to Him through His Son, you need to react to that. Not to the pastor twisting your arm, not to the pressure of the church around you, but because you want to know God in spirit and in truth. There's a third group. We see in verse 33, Paul goes on. And now in verse 34, we have the yes group. Verse 34, how be it certain men clave unto him. So before Paul leaves town, 
there are a few people that found Paul. Now, I don't know how long they had together, maybe just hours, maybe a day or two, I don't know. But you have a couple of people mentioned by name, Dionysius the Europagite. That's the head judge. That's the big shot. That is the guy, that is the head judge of the entire Oropagus. This particular court system was not only the highest in Greece, but in the entire region. Anytime there was a difficult matter of law, they would send it to this place, to Mars Hill for judgment, because they knew this place had the best minds on the hill. This guy, Dionysius, was the top of that. He got saved. He gets saved. He not only gives it a yes, it's an emphatic yes. What do you do when you get saved? You say, now that I'm a believer in Jesus, I want to learn a little more. I am not satisfied with Paul's 10-verse sermon. <laughs> Paul, I, 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 pardon me, Paul, before you leave town, can I take you for a coffee? I got a few questions. I'd love to hear all, tell me everything you know about Jesus about how to follow him. This is an outstanding story. I want to learn all I can. So Damaris, others, we don't know how many, they get involved in what you and I would know as discipleship. It's a very informal thing, but Paul, can you imagine how excited Paul is to sit down with the chief judge, with this other important lady, all these people sitting around going, tell us more. If he's alive, how do you know this? Um, tell us about this Bible thing. We've never been exposed to that. Well, what is, what, you know, how, how do we understand the Bible? And they're asking all these great questions. Did you know this man, Dionysius, eventually became the first pastor in Athens? Historically, he became the pastor of the first church in Athens. That church really didn't get big and become famous until maybe 300 years later, but Dionysius started that church after, of course, Paul leading him to Christ. Can I just tell you this morning... Because of the resurrection, it doesn't mean Jesus rose, that's important, so all of you need to become pastors. <laughs> okay, that, obviously, we're not, that's not the lesson we're learning here. What are we learning? Dionysius, his priorities changed. The direction of his life completely changed. I'm not saying that you have to give up your job. I'm just saying the way you approach your job must change. You don't have to give up your family, but the way you treat them, it must change. The resurrection, you're walking with a living Savior. You cannot meet Him and walk away the same. Something has to change. It changed in His life. And if you believe Jesus is alive, it ought to change yours. I think this through in my mind. Dionysius, you know, sat next to Paul, and they're having coffee or tea or whatever they drink in that day, and they're sitting there. He says, tell me all, how, how did you meet him? And Paul says, well, let me tell you my story. Man, I got a testimony for you. He said, you know, I wasn't always a Christian. What? You didn't grow up Christian? No, no, not me. I grew up. I was the Pharisee of the Pharisee. I was as Jewish as they get. He said, you know, back in the day, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not proud of it. I'm very ashamed of it. I used to kill Christians. Paul, you? Yeah, me. I used to curse them. I used to make fun of them. I used to beat them. I used to haul them off to prison. Had a few put to death. Like I said, I'm not happy about it, but I was convinced they were wrong. Man, what changed your mind? You know, well, I was on my way to Damascus one day, and I was going to beat some and torture some and haul them off to prison in Damascus. I had letters from the officials there to do it. And as I was approaching a light, Shown from heaven. I can see Dionysius leaning, yeah? And he said, then, I, then a voice spoke. And he said, the, the guys that were with me, all they did, they saw the light, they heard a voice, but they didn't know who it was that was speaking. They didn't know who was in the light. But then Jesus spoke to me. Did he? What did he say? He said, Saul, Saul. And Dionysius said, whoa, I thought your name was Paul. He said, it was, but then Jesus changed me, and I'm not, I'm not Saul anymore. I'm a new guy. I'll tell you more about that in a minute, but he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Can you just see Dionysius' face going, man, that is incredible. He spoke directly to you about your life and what you were doing? Yes, he cares about you personally. 
He knows what's going on in your heart and mind and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for. And when he shows up to you, he puts his finger on your heart and says, why are you doing this? Dionysius says, what did he say next? He said, "Uh, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, isn't it? Because I'd asked him, I said, well, Lord, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus. And deep down, Saul, you know that I'm the Messiah. And it's hard for you to kick against those pricks. And Dionysius leans in and says, what would you say next? He says, Dionysius, the only thing I could say was, Lord, what will thou have me to do? I, I immediately, right there and then, God had been working on my heart ever since the death of Stephen. I was there holding the clothes when they stoned Stephen to death. I saw Stephen praying to the Lord, asking God to forgive us for killing him. God had been touching my heart for weeks and months. I had been under conviction. And when I finally met the Lord, I saw him, he appeared to me. I couldn't deny it. I couldn't get around it. I couldn't make fun of it. I gave in to it. Dionysius, he leans back in his chair, you know, puts his coffee down and says, man, I wish I could see that. I, you know, I, I, Paul, I believe everything you're saying about the resurrection, but wouldn't it be fantastic? Wouldn't it be great if the Lord would just appear right here in the coffee shop and show himself to us? And Paul leans in and says, one day he will. Just like he appeared to the 12 and just like he appeared to the 500 and just like he showed up and, and he was seen of James and he was seen of this and seen of that, one day, brother, sister, he'll be seen of you. One day, You'll have your Damascus experience, but it won't be to save you. It'll be to translate you. It'll be to rapture you out of here. One day, you will have your appearance. Jesus will appear to you. Now, until that time, listen, if you're in the yes crowd, what is the proper reaction? Yes, I believe it. Now, from this point on, my life has a different purpose. From this point on, I'm going to live like he's alive. And whatever changes I need to make in my life so that it lines up with this new purpose so that when he appears, I don't get rebuked, but rather I hear well done, that's, I'll make those changes because it will be worth it. Let's all stand if you would, please. Let's stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Have some music play softly. To stand in a church in the year 2022 and say, Jesus is alive. He's risen again. It's a, we've heard this message. We know that. So now the question is, are, are we doing something about it? Still, How do we react to that? There's a decent chance that none of you in this room today would mock the resurrection of Christ. You wouldn't make fun of that. But still, somehow, you manage to push it out of your mind and it really doesn't come to bear in your life. Guys, if you're going to be in that yes crowd that says, I believe it, it needs to make a difference. So take a moment and you personally speak to the risen Savior, the one who is alive forevermore. Tell them, Lord, I believe you're alive. And if that's the case, you're listening to what I'm saying. And if that's the case, you can speak to me too. So tell me what to do. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's, that's the right response to believing in the resurrection. What wilt thou have me to do? 
I'm going to pray in just a moment. We'll close the service. If you're here this morning and you have never repented, that's the word Paul used, repented. That is, turn from what you are trusting to save you and say, Lord, I'm not able to save myself with what I'm doing. I'm going to trust what you did. If you've never done that, I would like to pray for you just that God would have patience with you. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm just going to pray for you. Would you be willing to slip your hand up just, just now and say, Preacher, just pray for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anybody else say, Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure that I'm saved. I believe that he rose from the dead, but I've never asked him to save me. If you're like that, would you just slip your hand up? You can put it right back down. Thank you. Man, I appreciate the honesty. Then this morning, you're in one of those three categories. Be honest. And if you're ready to get saved today, you talk to him about it as we pray. Father, thank you this morning for this wonderful truth that Jesus is alive. You've given us assurance. We know that you are a God that cares about justice. You're a God that gave a punishment for our sins, but you loved us so much you didn't give it to us. Thank you for making it possible to know who you are. Lord, help us, those that believe this message, we want to walk away different. We want to live in light of that resurrection. And we look forward to the day when we'll get to see you face to face, just like you appeared to your other disciples. One day you'll appear to us. Until that time, Lord, help us to be faithful to you. We love you. We thank you for all you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys enjoy the rest of this beautiful day outside.